0: And this scripture reading is from Luke uh, chapter 10, and it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil, and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So, Father, we pray together, bless our time in the word, quicken us, teach us. We really need and ask for your help and quickening, anointing as we teach, as we listen this morning. Help us in our understanding and our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, let's be seated together. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Have you ever heard about that before? It's probably the most well-known parable there is. Even unbelievers, non-churchgoers will be familiar with that parable. But it's also, I would venture to say, the most misunderstood of all parables. There's a chance that maybe there are some here this morning that hold that misunderstanding of this parable. Sometimes it's used to teach... The principle of morality or social justice in the community, that you should be a good Samaritan. Or some may hold the idea that to be a Christian, what qualifies you to be a Christian is that you live like the good Samaritan and that's how you get to heaven, etc. And I'm here this morning to tell you that that is incorrect, that that is a misconception and that is not what this parable means. We'll look at it uh, together. It's important when you look at a parable in the Bible to ask the question, what what is Jesus teaching this parable for? What misconception is he addressing? And typically, every time he teaches a parable, he is addressing a misconception that is there in the audience or with the person he's talking about. So as we look at the the verses before the parable, we, we, we get that setting in Luke 10, 25, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him. Now, this is not a lawyer that we would think of that in the, in the judicial system. This, this means an expert in the law, in the Jewish religion. He may have been a Pharisee or a scribe or even a priest, perhaps, but he was an expert in the law. And he stood up, and notice, he stood up and tested him. So this tells us something about this man's motive it wasn't pure. He wasn't seeking the truth. He, he, he was putting Jesus to the test. He was going to ask him a question to see if Jesus would answer it and honor the law in doing so. So what is his question? Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now that's a great question, isn't it? We love to answer that question. We love to share the gospel and explain the gospel to people about how someone can inherit eternal life. This man, when he asked the question, already had his own answer to this question. He was asking the question, as we will find out in verse 29, to justify himself. So as we notice, the context here is an evangelical encounter. This man is asking Jesus how to get eternal life, how to go to heaven, how to be saved, and Jesus is going to answer this man. But remember, Jesus doesn't give canned answers. Jesus answers and addresses the heart of the person. It's not always obvious in the text. But when we see his encounter with Nicodemus, when we see the woman at the well, when we see Zacchaeus, when we see the rich young ruler, Jesus answered each one very differently because he knew the real issue, the real question, the real obstacle, the real misconception. So Jesus cut straight to the heart of the person who, is, who he is ministering to. You may remember the story of the rich young ruler. This is in Mark 10. There are similarities with it. I'll read it to you. As he was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? Notice, same question. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? There is none good, only God. And you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your mother and father. And he answered and said to him, teacher, I have done this from my youth, probably in a loud, clear voice so everyone could hear. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, I love that inclusion, that he loved him. He knew him, he loved him, he understood him and he said... One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up your cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now Jesus was not saying as a general answer for everyone, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That's not the point. Jesus was addressing the man's heart. He, he was saying to him, listen, you, you are externally good. And in some measure, you keep these external commandments. But let's get right to the heart. You are, you are a sinner. You are selfish. And you, you miss the target when it comes to righteousness if we're really honest, if you want to play the external part and everyone says, wow, look at you, he keeps the law. But Jesus doesn't play those games. He cuts to the heart and he says, there's one thing lacking. There's one thing that is wrong in your heart, and you know it and I know it. And the man went away sorrowful because of that. So Jesus addresses this man in the same way. This man is coming to him on the basis of his own righteousness, Uh, looking to justify himself, believing that he is fulfilling the law, that he has actually earned his rights. Jesus is going to lovingly, firmly uh, address that and deal with him. So let's go back. Teacher, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And as he asks this question, he assumes two things. Number one, you have to do something to inherit eternal life. And secondly, he believes that he is able to do it and in fact he's probably already doing it. He's trusting in his own righteousness. So as you read this parable, you must frame it in that context that Jesus is telling this parable to strip this man of any self-righteousness that he has, to address the misconception he has that because he is externally, in some measure, sometimes observing these commandments, that he is somehow qualified and fit for heaven. And Jesus lovingly, graciously, is going to strip this man. He's going to crush this man's sense of self-righteousness. He wants to remove this man's confidence in his own deeds to earn his way to heaven. But Jesus meets him, first of all, on that premise of the law. So he says, okay, you want to speak about the commandments. Let's go there. He says to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? You're an expert in the law. This is what you do. You interpret the law and how we should live, etc. And you're asking me the question, you're the expert in the law, what do you say? Because often when people ask questions, they're not really seeking the truth, but they're seeking to justify themselves. So he answered He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He is quoting two different scriptures in the law, in the Torah, Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, you will love God with all your heart, and then you'll love your neighbor from Leviticus 19. He combines these scriptures, and he answers the question. Jesus himself when he was asking another time in Matthew 22, it says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, again, a similar uh, similarity, tested him, another similarity, with this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus answered and said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now what does that mean? If you could take the commandments and boil them right down to one word, it is love. It is love but not our love, not man's partial, indifferent, conditional, self-serving love, but it's agape love. It's an unconditional love that would self-sacrifice and lay down its life for another, not one time when it's convenient, but always, not to one person only, but not this person, but to every person. This is God's unconditional love. And if you could boil all of the commandments down to one word, it is love. And if you have that love, you fulfill the commandments, right? Paul alludes to this in Romans 13. He says, Owe no man anything except to love one another. And again, the Greek word there for love is agape love, God's love. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then he says, for the commandments, and he lists some of them, you should not commit adultery, murder, steal, etc. And if there is any other commandment, they are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, Paul does the same thing. He sums up all the commandments and loving your neighbor in this. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill these commandments. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Are you following we also see James pick up the same theme in James chapter 2. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law, this is that law of love, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor yourself as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, and here is the searching word to the heart, do we show partiality in our love? Hello? Yes, if you show partiality, you commit sin, and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, is guilty of all. And as you hear that, you should say, well, who can stand then? Who can stand before God and say, I've done it, I'm good enough, I fulfill the law, I love perfectly always? And the world should lay silent at that, at that truth. And in fact, Romans 3.19 says this was the very reason for the law to shut the mouth of all those in the world, that the whole world will become guilty before God. The law was given, not that man would seek to be justified by it, but the law was given to condemn men. The law was given like a mirror that I would say, oh, look at me. And I would look in the law and say, oh, I fall short. I am a sinner. I cannot live that life. I cannot attain to that. I do not measure up. Woe is me. And God would say, yes, that is where we must begin this is why Jesus is looking to strip these men and these Pharisees and these Jews from their misconceptions to bring them to a level playing field that all have sinned. Uh, we, you, hear, you know the phrase, we're in the same boat. Every man, woman, and child is in the same boat. Uh, some we, may, 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 may be judged to be good people and some may be judged to be bad people. And we understand that. And there are moral and civil laws. And, you know, we understand that. But essentially, both are sinners. And in terms of standing before God to merit my salvation, we are all in the same boat. We all fall short of the glory of God. You remember when, when Peter said to Jesus, oh, I will lay down my life for you, Remember? And what was he doing? He was boasting in his love. He was saying, Lord, I love you and I will not... He threw his fellow disciples under the bus and said, these guys might deny you, but I won't. Well, thanks, Peter. Thanks a lot for that. And Jesus said, really? Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And remember in the resurrection when Peter meets Jesus, Jesus said to him, do you love me, Jesus? And the word there is agape love. And Peter went, oh, you know, Lord. And Jesus asked a second time, do you love me? Do you agape love me? Oh, you know, Lord. And then Jesus changes the word love. He says, do you fillet love me? It's a friendship love. Do you love? He changed it. What was he saying to Peter? You understand, Peter, that I, I love your sincerity, I love your, your confession. I Thank you. But do you see that your love is deficient? That's an important lesson. So who then can, can be justified? Paul addresses this in Romans 3. I'll pluck out a few verses from this amazing passage. For example, in 3.10, it says, There are none righteous... Comma, no, not one. In verse 12, there are none good. Comma, no, not one. Verse 19, and the law is given that every mouth will be stopped and all would become guilty before God. Verse 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, now listen to this, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight it doesn't get any clearer or more conclusive than that. The Bible, with the loudest voice, heralds this truth that no flesh, no person will be justified by the deeds of the law. Verse 28 says, Therefore we conclude that a man and a woman is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Faith without works is how we are justified. Let's go back to Luke. Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. <laughs> Don't you love that? Really? Okay. You, you want to love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself? Okay, do that. See ya. And the man's heart was struck because if there was any integrity and honesty and transparency in that moment, he knew that he could not love like that. It cuts to the heart. It should do. It should leave man in the place where he says, woe is me then. Who then can be saved? And that's the point. How ironic it is that Jesus is now about to tell the parable of the good Samaritan, not to tell people you should live like a good Samaritan, but to tell people that you cannot. That's the point. Let's look at it. So the the man here had two options. He could either say, number one, oh gosh, you're right, woe is me, how can I get eternal life then? Or he could push back a little bit and resist and try and just himself a little bit further. He goes for option two in verse 29. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? In other words, you're saying, I've got to love my neighbor as myself. Okay, well, who's my neighbor? Because if I can narrow the definition a little bit, and I can... of choose my target on who that is that I will love then maybe I can manage that so who is my neighbor and the premise of this question was that the Jews had interpreted the law like this man as an interpreter of the law that your neighbor meant your fellow Jew it certainly didn't mean any non-Jew any gentile and it definitely didn't mean the Samaritans the worst of the worst There were racial barriers that were put up in terms of love and ministry and who my neighbor was and who I would have anything to do with. This comes from Leviticus 19, not to labor the point, but there was a a misunderstanding where it speaks about your own people and then comma, but love your neighbor. And they interpreted neighbor as your people, and that's not what what it meant. So now let's get to the parable. Jesus tells the parable to really address the question. He answers the question, "You want to know who your neighbor is? Let me tell you a story. Verse 30. And Jesus answered. "Now remember, he's answering the question to "Who, who is my neighbor?" That's the point of the parable. He's answering who your neighbor is. "A certain man." and notice, he doesn't say a certain Jew." a certain Gentile, he doesn't say a rich man, a poor man, he doesn't say a tax collector or a beggar, he doesn't say a good man or a bad man, he just says a certain man, that's the point, went down to Jerusalem from Jericho, fell among the thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, departed, and left him for dead." If you go to Israel, you can visit this road from Jerusalem, the high elevation down to Jericho. It's about almost a 20-mile road, very steep, very rocky, notorious uh, for, for being robbed, particularly in this time, which is why Jesus uses that road in the parable. It leaves him half dead, meaning if he wasn't treated, he would have surely died. Verse 31, now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now to this man, the lawyer, and any others that were listening, this priest was the most respected person in society. Uh, you know, if, if anyone were, were doing well, were righteous men, our examples, it is the, priest, it is the priesthood. And he says he passed by on the other side. Now, many commentaries try and unwrap that. Why did he pass by on the other side? Was it because he didn't want to touch a dead body? He didn't want to defile himself? Uh, He was too busy. He didn't want to get robbed. And the point is, uh, it's none of those reasons. Because it's not a real man. It's a parable. You can't read too much into the parables. The point is, he did not help the man. That's the point. He did not not care about the man. He did not love the man. He acted in a self-serving way and he passed by on the other side. Likewise, in the same way, a Levite, these were those who assisted the priests, when he arrived, he came and looked. Maybe he looked and pondered for a moment, but not too long. He passed by on the other side. And again, the point is he did not... He did not care about this man. Verse 33, but, and this always introduces the turning point, the punch, if you will. Something unexpected, unusual is about to be uh, introduced. But a certain Samaritan. Now this packed a punch because the Jews had nothing to do with the Samaritans and vice versa. There was a real divide culturally, religiously, socially. They had nothing to do with each other. Jesus could have easily said, but a certain man, he wasn't a priest or a Levite, but a certain man, but no, he chooses Samaritan. And this would have really got the attention of his Jewish audience and really got the attention of this man. A certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. Oh, he did not pass by on the other side, but he came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And that is something that is not mentioned regarding the other two. But here it says he had compassion. He had heart. He had care. He had love. Compassion is love that acts. There is a compassion or even an empathy, perhaps. And and because of love, you are moved to act. If you can meet the need, you will do that. So he went to him and he bandaged up his wounds and oil and wine to soothe and disinfect the wound. He set him on his own animal, brought him to the inn and took care of him. This wasn't his plan at the beginning of the day. It was inconvenient, but he did it. And on the next day, verse 35, so he stayed the night. When he departed, he took out two denarii, that's two days' wages, much more than was needed uh, to pay the innkeeper gave them to the innkeeper and said, whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay. Now he applies the lesson. Now he turns the question back to the lawyer. Verse 37. And he said to him, oh, sorry, where is it? Which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Now notice, he reverses the question. The lawyer had asked, who is my neighbor? But Jesus changes the question. It's not about who is your neighbor, but it's who can you be a neighbor to? Who was it who was a neighbor to the one who was in need? He changes the question. It's it's wonderful. It's um, subtle, but it's a wonderful point. It's not, should I love that guy based on this or this or culture or whatever, or is he nice or good or bad? But it's you being a neighbor. And the law said, love your neighbor. And this is ask, answering the question, who is your neighbor, of course? The Greek word for neighbor means one who is close. I mean, this man in the parable, he didn't know him, he wasn't his next door neighbor. He didn't live in the same community. He'd never met him before. He had nothing to do with the man, but he was on his path. He was on his road. He was in the sphere of his life. That made him a neighbor. It's anyone and everyone, whoever crosses path, who's ever in your life, is your neighbor. And that's what Jesus is trying to drive home. You're asking, who is my neighbor? And I'm telling you, the question is about being a neighbor to whoever is near to you. So, he answers the question, verse 37, and he said, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. He hits it again. Okay, yeah, go do that. You know? Now he's, he's, he's redefining what neighbor is, which is much more, you know, which is unobtainable, And then Jesus says, okay, if you still want to meet me on this plane of keeping the law to get eternal life, good luck with that. Go for it. Now he's defined who the neighbor is. If he was struck in his heart before, how much more now? In other words, this is Jesus leaves him with a humanly impossible obligation again it should bring the lawyer to the end of himself at this point we would or even earlier in the encounter we would have loved to have seen the lawyer fall on his knees and say oh i can't do that we actually don't know how it ends but this reminds us of in matthew chapter 5 is the sermon on the mount i'll pluck out a few verses that perhaps drive this point home. Matthew 5.20 says, I say to you, Jesus says, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, again, in the Jewish community, at the top of the scale of righteousness was the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you cannot enter in. And at this point, a Pharisee might have came up and said, oh, Jesus, I'm okay then because I'm a Pharisee. And Jesus would say, no, unless your righteousness exceeds. In other words, you cannot cannot attain to it is the point. It's the highest standard. Verse 21, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. That's what the Old Testament law said. But Jesus said, I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. What? What? Are you a good person? Yeah, well, I've never murdered anyone. Ever heard that? Jesus says, well, if you are angry with your brother without a cause, you are in danger of the judgment. And what should the response be? Oh, well, that's it then. I'm disqualified. I've been angry at my brother many times. Verse 26. Whoever says to his brother, which is a word that means worthless one, shall be in danger of judgment before the council. But I say, whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Let's park there for a moment. If you ever say to someone, you fool, that verse says, you are in danger of hellfire. What's he saying? If you want to think that your acceptance is based on you keeping the law, you, you you are greatly mistaken. The law was given to show you that you cannot live up to it, to strip you of your self-righteousness, to bring you in your bankrupt condition to God and say, show mercy to me, give grace to me. I am a sinner and I don't want what I deserve, but I want what I don't deserve and that's the very definition for grace. There's another one. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There's every man disqualified right there with a stroke of a brush. You say don't commit adultery. Jesus goes much deeper. If you even lust in your heart, Verse 43, and this actually connects with our message today even more so. Jesus says, you have heard it said that you will love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Now, okay, you might say, well, I could love my next door neighbor, at least on this side, not the guy on the other side. But I could love my neighbor here. But Jesus goes way beyond and says, how about this? Loving your enemies, which will bring any self-righteous, boastful person who wants to talk about what a good person they are, should bring them to the place where they say, okay, you got me there. Loving my enemies, I can't do that. And again, that's the point. I, I, in a strange way, I hope that this is comforting because it clearly puts us all in the same boat. All have sinned. All fall short of the righteousness of God. The glory of God in Romans 3.23. All. That's a pretty inclusive word, isn't it? All. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. (laughs) Oh, man. Who can do that? No one can do that. Psalm 130 verse 3 says, If God would mark iniquity, who could stand? Could you stand? I couldn't stand. Who could stand if God would mark iniquity? Isaiah 64, 6, All man's righteousness are as filthy rags. And if anyone wants to come and present their filthy rags to God, go for it. Romans 3.10, we read, there is none good, not one. The mouth should be shut, that all can be justified by faith without works. The whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament was based on sin. It was necessitated because men sinned. It's interesting, when, when when Moses went up on the mount, two major things happened. First of all, he communed with God for the whole 40 days about the tabernacle, And then just before he came down on those last few days, he wrote the tablets of stone and gave them to Moses. And before Moses even got down the mountain with the law, the people were breaking them one by one. Even before he got there, they made the the golden calf. They violated the first commandment. Even before Moses had got there, they had violated the law. So the whole sacrificial system was based on sin. That's why when God gave the law, he also gave the tabernacle. So that the law would cause man to say, woe is me, cause him to run into the tabernacle, so to speak, and come to God not on the basis of his own merit, but on, on the basis of a sacrifice. And that's why Jesus died on the cross for us, for he was the substitutionary sacrifice. The wages of sin is death, but he died in our place. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, but he shed his blood that we would be forgiven. So as we read this parable, we hope that the conclusion was that as this man went away and he considered it, he, he came to the place where he realized he could only be accepted, forgiven, uh, saved on the basis of forgiveness and grace. Such a misunderstood parable. The irony of it must get our attention. Jesus said that about the parables, right? That, that some understand and some, some do not. So love is a fulfillment of the law. We, ask, um, we have a question. We can have the question afterwards. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you. So love is a fulfillment of the law. You cannot stop. You cannot love in that way. Now, here's the final point, which in fact might answer the question. Where do good works fit into a Christian's life? Aren't we also called as Christians to express a life like the Good Samaritan that has compassion, that would show mercy, that would express love to our fellow man? We certainly are. And this is the beauty of the Christian life, that when we truly are born again and become a Christian and the Holy Spirit is in our life, Romans 5.5 says that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts and we find ourselves actually loving our enemies. Maybe not always all the time, but when we are yielded to the Spirit and we are quickened by Him, we find that we can love beyond our natural capacity. This is the beauty of the Christian life, that the fruit of the Spirit is love. That we are disqualified in the flesh, but we are qualified in the Spirit. That we are enabled by grace to do what we could never do under the law. And here's the beauty. We are limited, we are lost, we are condemned. And when we are saved, we find ourselves loving, ministering, forgiving, And there are no racial boundaries, no social boundaries, no religious boundaries. But we can love our brother, love our neighbor, and even love our enemy. And that is a a marvel and a mystery. Because the Christian life is not something that we live up to. It is something that we yield to and God ministers to us and through us by his grace and by his spirit. So Ephesians 2.8 says we are not saved by works, but the next verse, verse 10 says, we are saved unto good works. Good works certainly have a place in the Christian life, but our good works do not earn our salvation. Our good works are a result of us being saved and having God's spirit in our life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning We thank you we could consider these pages, these passages, this parable. We thank you for how you address our self-righteousness, how you bring us afresh to grace, to look to you and say, oh, Lord, help us, help us. We are fallen, and we sense that in ourselves, that we 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 are not perfect, we are not who we were designed to be, but through the fall we are deficient. Oh, but we thank you for redemption, for the gospel, that you save, that you redeem, you change our lives, that you make us ministers, that you give us your love, you give us your grace. We thank you for that transformation. We pray for each one here. We pray for those who are watching online. We, perhaps there's one here or watching online. You're not sure of your salvation. Maybe you have had the the temptation to trust your own works. Maybe because of that you have disqualified yourself, or maybe you have thought you could be qualified by how good you are. But you are saved not by works, but by grace through faith. Jesus is the one who died for you. He died on the cross. He was the only one who was without sin. He came here in the flesh to take your place. Oh, the wonderful gospel. We're so thankful. We're so thankful. We are so bankrupt in our own righteousness, but so rich in your grace that you enable us and bless us and lead us. Oh, if that's your prayer of salvation today, pray that to God. Look to him. Just like in another parable where we see the public can strike his breast and say, Oh, have mercy to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, that man went home justified. So, Father, hide these thoughts in our hearts. Help us on our journey of faith and understanding of the gospel. Bless this local assembly, all of those who are listening online. We thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.